Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. Today's guest is Reverend Sarah Bowen, who is an animal chaplain. What on earth is an animal chaplain, you ask? Well, I wanted to know too, so stick around and you will find out when Sarah and I have a wonderful conversation about that and much more. But before we get into that interview, I had some thoughts I wanted to share with you. And what I wanted to talk about today is the paradoxical nature of being well, vegan, really being kind of awake and aware on this planet, being aware of the suffering, being aware of the environmental destruction. It can be heavy, it can be dizzying, because you can really struggle with the balance between despair and hope, finding hope and optimism as well. I struggle with this balance. Because I'm so aware of the suffering of animals and what they endure in the process of food production, and I'm also aware of the destructive nature of just so much of what we do on a planetary level, it, you know, it's intense, it hurts, but I'm simultaneously in love with this planet and the incredible animals and the magnificence of this place and the beauty of people and art and nature it it can be really it can be really paradoxical <laughs> it just feels kind of dizzyingly paradoxical and i had a really just prominent example of this happened to me recently. I was searching Google images for a fish image. I needed an, an image of a fish for something. And I just put in the word fish in the Google image search. And I was getting these gorgeous images of underwater scenes and colorful, beautiful fish. It was really lovely. And at the same time, simultaneously, about every five images or so, there was also a picture of people hunting and killing fish, what's called fishing. So I was looking through these just incredible images of the amazing underwater splendor and variety of exquisite fishes. But at the same time, I was forced to look at these you know, just horrific and sickening images of people killing and cutting and causing fish to suffocate out of the water while they smiled at the camera. It was an awful mix of emotions, right? Uh, just the utter amazement of the beauty of this planet mixed with the dismay and outrage over our taking and our killing. What humans do just so unconsciously, kind of oblivious. I mean, all I, all I could think too is these people were just really oblivious to the harm they were causing. Fishing is seen as such a benign pastime, but it causes the suffering and death of billions of sentient fish that feel pain and yes, have emotions and personalities. Fish absolutely do. And most of all, they want to live so it can sometimes be hard to find that balance between hope and despair. 
I'm daily outraged and horrified by this world. And that seems to come easy, right? But I try to also be daily optimistic. And that can sometimes be harder. But I do believe that it is critical to cultivate that optimism, that faith in humanity and in the future. As vegans, we are more sensitive to the world. And, I, and I've found that as I get older, I'm even more sensitive to the pain of others, knowing the horrors of the world that many people ignore, that many people don't know about. It can make you angry and bitter and frustrated, but it can also make you stronger. And what I'm trying to do is cultivate that sensitivity to the good as well. So we're sensitive to the bad, we see it, we feel it, but I'm trying to become more sensitive to the good. And I think something to always remember is that, for the most part, it's good people doing bad things. Most everyone doesn't want to hurt animals, not intentionally. So we have to have empathy for those that just haven't made that connection between their own inherent ethics of not wanting to cause harm and their actions. And empathy doesn't mean agreeing with or ignoring what people do. It just helps us, I think, I think first of all, to not be so bitter and not feel so against the world. But also empathy helps us to understand where people are coming from, that they've been told and taught that eating animals is normal, just as most vegans were at some point. But empathy also helps us to approach others with an attitude of love and compassion so our message will be heard. And I try every day to become sensitive to the good. In our new home in Sacramento here, we've been here about three years, out my office window, I can see the tops of the trees of our backyard. And in the morning, it is a squirrel playground, like a super highway. They come running through. Sometimes it's just two chasing each other. Sometimes it's three and four and they're running. And I love it. I, I always try, if I can, to stop and watch and just marvel at how fast they are and the acrobatic jumps and the parkour play high up in the treetops of these squirrels. It's amazing. And I try to take that moment to witness the joy that they are feeling and the amazing beauty of their, of their play, right? So trying to stop and find those small daily things that connect you to the good in the world. And when it comes to spirituality in the theme of our upcoming guest, for me, it just, it gives me comfort to look at the world as more than meets the eye on a metaphysical level. There's just so much wonder on this planet. I mean, even just on a biological level, I mean, it's the, the amazing mystery of life in this planet, that's spiritual enough in and of itself. But I want to believe in hope. I want to believe that there's something deeper going on than what we can know, than what we can measure with instruments. And I think that's that's going to look different for everyone. There's two two different aspects to hope that I want to talk about. And one is quantifiable and the other is non-quantifiable. 
with the quantifiable aspect of hope, there's some effect, some, some, sometimes small, some effect that can be known, something moving us in the right direction that we can measure. For instance, with veganism, we sometimes hear people say, oh, well, I'm just one person, me going vegan, it isn't going to make a difference. Well, actually, it does on a quantifiable level. There is the principle of supply and demand that can be quantified. When there's that one last vegan product on the shelf and you buy it and the store then buys more of that product, you're creating demand for that compassionate product. And so did the last 20 vegans that bought that product. So there is a quantifiable effect and that creates hope, hope that we can create change, that we are decreasing the demand to cause harm to animals and increasing compassion, creating a compassionate world. We're seeing it everywhere now. Vegan products are becoming so much more abundant. So that is quantifiable hope. But I believe that there is also unquantifiable hope. Even though statistically something may not be quantifiable, it may not be measurable, you still know it's having an impact because it, it feels right. It's the right thing to do. It might be beyond what we can calculate with objective empirical data, but we feel it. We know it in our hearts. It's just so important. There's a potential with being vegan, a promise of something better. And this is why living vegan feels spiritual to me. You know, I'm still horrified by what's happening to animals every day. It hurts me. I'm disgusted. I'm heartbroken about things done to animals, to people, to this planet. These emotions come easy for most vegans, and they're important and shouldn't be discounted. These are the feelings that can prompt taking action and making change. But then we also need to find balance, the balance of optimism, of courage and faith and trust and hope. These things are often harder to come by, harder to hold on to. They need to be cultivated and that's why I believe that a spiritual practice, spiritual study, perhaps a spiritual community can help us to hold on to these things, things that nourish us, things that sustain us, that make us better vegans, better people, better messengers for the animals. It doesn't have to be spiritual uh, or religious. It could just be self-reflection, meditation, communing with nature, whatever it is, whatever works for you. But I think that a spiritual journey and a vegan journey can walk the same path and complement each other and make us stronger and bring us hope. Okay, so let's now move into our interview for today. Right. Well, it is lovely for me to introduce our guest today. Today, we have Reverend Sarah Bowen, and she is an award-winning author, animal chaplain, and multi-faith spiritual educator. Her new book is called Sacred Sendoffs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. 
Uh, it contains tools for surviving animal loss and mindfully extending compassion to the millions of other animals that we share this interdependent planet with. And she's also one of the co-founders of the Compassion Consortium. It's an interfaith, interspecies online gathering that's once a month. And I try to attend whenever I can. I love this gathering and I always love Reverend Sarah's contribution with prayers for all animals. Welcome to the podcast, Reverend Sarah. Delighted to be here, Hope. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And we usually like to start our journey with your vegan journey. So why did you go vegan? When did you go vegan? Tell us about uh, what got you on that path. You know, I don't have one of those kind of large aha moments in my story. What I have is a bunch of different openings to different things that happened in my life that put me on the journey before I realized I was on the journey, uh -huh. I suppose. I, I grew up as a small kid in a house in Nebraska and vegan wasn't a word that I knew. It wasn't an option that I knew. Uh, I didn't have the internet or social media or vegan educators or farm sanctuaries nearby, or any of these kind of kind of things that we have today that are so helpful for people. My father was from a farm in South Carolina that we visited in the summers. And I have to confess that I never realized the purpose of what was going on there until mm. my 20s. Mm. I didn't connect it. I thought that grandpa's place had cows like my house had cats right you know we didn't we didn't talk about it it wasn't discussed what was happening mm. and we all of us little kids uh were kind of kept in the dark about what was going on it took a lot of time to unpack that as part of my journey and my mother grew up with tremendous food insecurity due to alcoholism family dysfunction and so I was expected to eat what was ever put on my plate in front of me. Mm. And I can remember now with the clarity of hindsight and, and being of a certain age now that there was really a constant sense of tension. I remember taking pieces of food, um, you know, that kind of got stuck in my mouth and putting it in napkins and hiding it under the table. I remember Thanksgivings uh, that were pretty particularly painful and asking for them to put certain courses of the meal not on the table could you please put that in the kitchen could you please put um you know that that platter not near me um things like that and so i think that this journey was it was it because it had meat on it i'm not sure I yeah understand. it was because it had you know I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying the big bird in the middle of the table Oh, um, wow. there was so much pain for me of seeing that just the kind of displayed. And I knew at a very, I would say I had a deep knowing that, that this wasn't okay. Just kind of on a subconscious level. Yeah. And, and I didn't have the language. I didn't have the language for it. I had a lot of stress around it. Mm. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a preacher's kid. And so I had been raised with this idea of, God loves all creatures and it just didn't gel, right? Here, God yeah. loves all creatures and what, what, what's this going on? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think the final piece of that is of, of my early story is that 
you know, I, I'm a person in long-term recovery. Uh, I am a person who uh, didn't have the coping skills from my family to deal with tension or stress or uh, anxiety or depression or any of the things uh, due to, you know, some of the things going on with my parents. And so I drank wine or beer when I was a young kid, right? And, and I can remember sitting at the Thanksgiving table and being so distressed and distraught and just saying, all right, I'll have another glass of wine. So I think we, sometimes we don't even think about what we do as coping skills for that cognitive dissonance of something is happening here. I don't have the language for it. I don't really understand what it is. No one has told me there are other ways that I could eat. And what do I do? I'm just stuck. Mm. And that feeling is horrible. Yeah. So, you know, later to, to wrap up the very long journey, as many of us have, you know, as I started my spiritual journey, as I got in 12 step recovery, as I started to read Buddhist text and get all juicy into interfaith stuff, that's when I, I found those other options. They didn't come to me through, through veganism. They came to me through Buddhism and through the mm. Vedas and through sacred texts mm. first. And so that's really a lot of, of what the work I do is trying to help people go back and, and kind of see these instances that there are in these age old texts for like, Hey, you know, we need a different relationship with animals. And it, it kind of happened one animal at a time as I had these amazing experiences being locked eye to eye. Uh, I was in Nepal for one of my birthdays and I was behind a truck of animals and it was being taken to a place that it was very clear where they were being taken. And I was stuck in traffic behind them and my eyes locked. And I had this deep knowing of, yep, can't eat you. Mm. Can't do it. Cannot do it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that, it, it just, just a really deep within my body of, oh dear God, what has been going on here? Wow. And, and I was, I'm grateful to say that there, there were just so many instances where a being was put in front of me or in my path to make me question something, hmm. even beyond, beyond eating, you know, all those things that we include as part of our vegan journey, where I was faced with, Hey, this isn't okay. So hmm. it's, it's a winding journey home uh -huh, uh -huh. and it, it was certainly not linear and it continues. Well, uh, it continues. Wow. Well, we have some parallels there because my great grandfather was a preacher and I come from a line of, uh, you know, ministers and pastors. Uh, and also I had a similar situation in my teens when I just couldn't eat the meat on the table and, and, you know, not really understanding, but making that connection that this is an animal and I love animals, you know, not knowing vegetarians or anything else other than I just, I don't want to eat my friends. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I, I, um, I can relate to that being a young person, not having the, really the knowledge or the, or the background but just feeling it inside subconsciously knowing, you know, that it's, that it's wrong on some level, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a powerlessness, you know, and I often use 12 step language in, in my speaking for, for obvious reasons, but there's a powerlessness to being a small child who is not, you know, I did not grow up in an affluent family. I did not have a lot of spending cash to go out and buy what I wanted to eat. Uh, I was really stuck with, 
school lunches and what my parents served me. And there was a powerlessness to, I don't want to eat this. Mm. Uh, but when you don't know, when you feel like all of your uh, decisions and your survival is based on what your parents are offering you, it's a hard thing for a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So you started talking a little about your spiritual journey and how that connects to veganism and, uh, and not eating animals. And these are two worlds, of course, that, that are very, um, inspirational to me. I feel that they are, uh, very connected, a uh, spiritual journey and a vegan journey. And I wonder what brought these worlds together for you. You talked a little about Buddhism and the Vedas and uh, finding those truths in the ancient texts of compassion and uh, compassion for all beings. So tell us about that journey. Tell us about how these two worlds complement each other in your life. Well, we're going to have to back up to when I'm six. Wow. And I'm going to have to tell you again, I'm I'm this, I'm this little preacher's kid who loves to be in the woods uh, that we've dubbed the bunny woods because on Sundays, all the rabbits are out there and we get mm. to go out and see them and, and in the spring, see the little babies. And then all of a sudden, these big yellow construction machines come and start to cut the woods down because they're going to put up condos next to the church. Oh. And I, I start this, um, I don't know, protest, I suppose is, is the word, advocacy, uh, taking all the kids with my dad's key to the supply closet into the, uh, into the church. And we get out all the poster board and the, and the uh, big paints and markers and everything. And we make these huge signs that says, Jesus loves bunnies. Oh, <laughs> and we, I love and it. We stick, them, <laughs> we stick them to the trees. And wow, you know, heart breaks now for these guys who, you know, showed up, you know, for their job yeah. in, in the, in the uh, construction thing and see, you know, all of these signs from little kids saying, Jesus loves bunnies. Don't, don't take the bunny woods. But I think that was the, that was really the first moment of this, this advocacy hmm. and this understanding, you know, right next to my church wow. that, that this was God's, this was God's place. This was God's land. You know, don't, don't meddle with this. And, you know, my father then explained real estate development to me and, um, you know, and I, and I had a kind of awakening, but I continued and I used to talk about this a little in sacred send-offs. You know, I, I am one of these people who doesn't shy away from talking about animal death as well as animal life and the preservation of life. Because on my way home from school, I would find these little critters who'd been hit by cars mm. and my heart broke. And so I would put them in my lunchbox and I would bring them home and I would bury them in my mother's bushes and have these little funerals and services for these little beings that I, I you know, I didn't know, but I cared about. And I thought they should be treated with reverence because my dad did funerals for humans. He was always going out and doing funerals. So I started doing these little funerals for chipmunks and squirrels and it's there at the beginning. Again, it's very, very much there at the beginning. Mm. And then, you know, when I, when I started to go to seminary and do my, my uh, studies and I started to dig into the literature about connections with animals and the human animal bond, you just find reference after reference after reference of, of compassion for animals throughout the ages. And you also find 
you know, some speaking to this idea that we can connect with animals without language, that we can connect to them spiritually in whatever, you know, I don't want to put words in people's mouths if that word, if spiritual word, the, the word spiritual isn't uh, one that you use, but, you know, think about the connection to consciousness or to energy yeah. or to just being at its most foundational level that we have the capacity, and this is a lot of what we do at the Compassion Consortium, we have this capacity to connect on a level without words. We rely far too much on our human loquaciousness, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and our big, big brains to solve all these problems. But I think that when you ask about how they complement each other, spirituality, mindfulness, meditation, prayer, uh, forest bathing, all of these spiritual practices give us a way to connect Uh, outside of ourselves to other beings to habitats and for many of us to something that's greater than ourselves by whatever word we might we might use for that yeah so and you did grow up in a a religious household you've you've kind of talked about that Uh, what was the religion I'm just curious I was uh, raised Southern Baptist born again Christian so I wondered what the religion was and what you would say your religion is now Oh, that's a mess. Um, a <laughs> Messy question, huh? Beautiful, sacred mess. Uh-huh. So, you know, I was raised Presbyterian okay. and, and I was raised not in that kind of, you know, footloose view of a preacher's kid. You know, my dad was a social justice advocate. Oh. Um, he was involved in interfaith dialogue. He took us to the Jewish community center every Saturday so he could steam with the rabbis. You know, we had this very interfaithy type of thing. And and my father's view of his call was that, you know, he was there to help reduce suffering and to help increase community. And, you know, I liked those two things. I didn't like everything about church. When I got to be 13, you know, I, I became rather self-absorbed and, you know, church didn't, didn't work in the same way for me. So, you know, I went on Christmas and I went on Easter and I went on Mother's Day uh, throughout my college years and throughout my twenties and thirties. Um, but you know, what happened was after my father died very early, very young, very dramatically, I decided to work on a book based on his sermons. My inheritance, uh, was 1500 sermons in folders that he had written. And I wanted to be connected Mm. to my father. And so I started reading them. And at first hope, I have to tell you, I was so stubborn and I had been hurt by some religious ideas and I was yeah. very, um, I was very conflicted. And so I would, I would sort the sermons and I would say, okay, this one talks too much about Jesus. I don't want this one. This one talks about love and compassion. I'll read that one. And, you know, and I dipped in, in the way that was comfortable to me of what I was able to work with. But I realized very quickly that because I had quit going to Sunday school, I had a lot to learn. And so that led me to enrolling in seminaries so that I could make sure I didn't make mistakes in the book. Huh. Wow. <laughs> and, and then it got me. Once I got there, it got me of like, wow, look at all these ways in the world that we make meaning and look at all these amazing practices. So as to what I am now, I, I teach at a seminary in, in New York, an interface seminary. And I often just call myself a religious free agent or a spiritual rebel. (laughs) Ah. Um, But if I had to be technical, here it goes. This is a mouthful. I'm a Buddhist Vedic Jewish Christian Taoist who studied Wicca, 
meditates with the Brahma Kumaris and wants to be a Jedi when I grow up. <laughs> That's the wow. mess. Wow. I love That's it. The mess. Yep. So you are considered an animal chaplain. I am so curious to hear about what this means. What does it mean to be an animal chaplain? So the short answer is I spiritually support all beings, regardless of their species or of their belief system. So a chaplain usually functions outside the walls of a particular religious institution. I remember as a kid, my first introduction to chaplain was the TV show MASH. And there was this <laughs> chaplain on there who was right there in the war zone, in the middle of the hospital, trying to help people, regardless of whether, you know, what they thought or they believed or, or which side they were on or what yeah. was going on. Yeah. And that stuck with me, you know, of, of that being chaplaincy. So I really view it that way. A chaplain is here to support you on your journey, whether, <laughs> whether you're a human, you're a cat or a deer, or a chicken, or whatever that is. So what that means I do is a couple of things. Um, I already mentioned that I, uh, I teach interspecies meditation practices to help support human-animal bonds. Uh, that's a lot of what we do at Compassion Consortium too, and it's fabulous. What are these things that we can do to, to try to connect? I also do a lot of writing. I insert animals into places that they are often ignored. Mm. Uh, I write a column for spirituality and health magazine. I do some podcasting and then the new book, sacred Sendoffs. I also help humans make difficult decisions about the lives of animal companions and other animals, free living animals. You know, what, what do we do when we get up against these really messy ethical quandaries? What do we do when an action doesn't match our values? And in the event that we lose an animal, uh, because we are all going to die one day. If we lose an animal, you know, how do we, how do we bear the grief? How do we deal with loss? Uh, if we're an animal activist or advocate, how do we deal with compassion fatigue, ethical fatigue, uh, dystopia? How do, how do we deal with the pain that we feel when uh, we see an animal being treated poorly or when an animal loses their life? What, what do we do about that? So I do a lot of work there. And then I also do, I think the final thing I would say is I do a lot of increasing awareness in spiritual and religious spaces about, <laughs> about a lot of things you talk about on your podcast, Hope. And mm. the, the, I'm sure that the listeners are, are involved in how do we make these connections between species and Earth's habitats and the problems facing um, animals who are kept captive or who are farmed or who, uh, what about interspecies issues of hazardous roads and deforestation mm -hmm. and ocean pollution and oh my, all of these things. Yeah. How, how do we have those conversations? So, you know, each animal chaplain functions a little differently. There are many animal chaplains who are based solely in the world of what they would call pets or pet chaplaincy. Um, that word's a little loaded for some of us, uh, but I take it as wide as possible. How can I get people to stop killing ants in their pantry and relocate them. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's that, it's that big and, it, and it's beautiful work and it gets into really messy conversations and beautiful ones like the one we're having today. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, oh, the ants. Oh, it's so hard. There are some areas that are very difficult, like animals that enter into our homes that are not supposed to be there. So what do we do? And it is an interesting area to kind of ponder what's step back. What is, what is, what are my options here? What's the best thing that I can do without reacting, you know, and uh, take the time and see what, what we can do to be more compassionate and, and try to, to save lives, save as many little lives as possible. That's one of the things I have a lot of, you know, I had a student call me just the other day and said, you know, we've had some mice move in. I'm heartbroken. What do I do? Yeah. And I think that those are the kind of conversations that, that are really helpful for an animal chaplain or someone to be able to say, you're not crazy in asking this question. Yeah. Uh, this shows that you have an open heart and a compassionate heart. Yeah. And you're extending it to all of these places. And we should be asking those questions and working through that. And often we'll find <laughs> if we can go back and seal up some of the cracks in our homes and, you know, and do some things to make our homes less hospitable, perhaps. Right. And also to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw the prayer word in there or the meditation word, you know, can we have a conversation and say, Hey, little dudes, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, this, this is, this is, this is not working for me. Yep. And, and would you leave, you know, yeah. can I, can I ask you please to, to go and, and would you be willing to do that? And my house is really not a great place to live because I've just put <laughs> steel wire in the hole that you were coming up or, you know, whatever it is yeah, that, that we're yeah. trying to do to think of that first, like you say, hope before the reaction. Right. And so I think a lot of this kind of spiritual connection um, can help us with that. That's beautiful. I love that. Cause you know, when you say, oh, veganism, it's kind of cut and dry. Okay. Don't buy animal products, but there's a lot of gray in there with, with our daily lives, everything that we do and encounter and how we encounter animals. So yeah, that's wonderful work. It is. And yeah. I think that also admitting the places where we, where we feel that we are falling short mm -hmm. can be or our heartbreak in the areas that we aren't able to change is an opening for people who are not yet at the same place that we are. So Reverend Sarah, I've heard you talk about animals, spiritual lives. And this is, this, this is really of interest to me because my young years, my spiritual, my religious uh, influence was my grandmother. And I, I loved her dearly. And she was a very religious woman. And I, you know, learned love and compassion and caring for each other and your neighbors and all of that through her. But one thing she said to me, and it was a couple of different conversations because I had such an affinity for animals. I was always loving and talking about animals. I had pictures of animals all over my room, you know, when I was young. And she would say to me something like, well, now, you know, animals don't have souls, you know, kind of, I'm not sure what she was trying to do, but I think she was trying to uh, tamp down my affinity for animals in a way. I'm not sure exactly. And unfortunately she's left this world, so I can't ask, but it, it was one of the things that pulled me away from religion really, uh, because to me, 
it was very obvious to me that animals had souls just like we do, you know, even in my young mind. And it's also what drew me more towards the Eastern religions, Eastern spirituality, because they do believe that animals have souls, many of them, not all. It's, you know, there's, uh, of course, variations. So I would love to hear your thoughts on animals' spiritual lives. You know, we have a similar path there, Hope. I had so many questions about the same thing that you were conversing with your grandmother about. Hmm. We find even in the Abrahamic traditions within Christianity and Judaism and Islam, these references to animals praising God. We find these references to God caring about animals. We find all sorts of, uh, oh, Jesus has a ton of things where, you know, he, he says you could break the Sabbath to save an animal. Hmm. Uh, he jumps into the temple, ticked off about what's going on with sacrifice and yeah. flips tables over and frees animals. So we have all of these. And at the same time, within those traditions, we have inherited this idea from not the scriptures and not the sacred text, but from clergy who's told us that animals don't have souls. And, and in that statement, and not all clergy, bear in mind, I, I'm kind of going back in the historical legacy here of, of popes who have declared that. And, and sure. Folks. And I think what really bothers us about this as people who care about animals is, is understanding why, why, is there, why is there a distinction here? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so I think we have to chalk it up to the same other kind of organizational structures and systems that sought to place human lives as valuable. And to do that, they did it in comparison to lives that weren't valuable or were who valuable economically or valuable from a utility utilitarian standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, where I net out is that whatever humans have other mammals and other types of animals clearly have too. I can't prove that a human has a soul, but you know we know that we have consciousness or aliveness or beingness or whatever, and we use different words for it. We use, I just gave you four or five. We also use soul. We also use prana or chi, or you know, we, we have different words in different traditions for this idea that there is life. There is life in us. And then we have a lot of questions about what happens when that life seems to leave the body. And we can get really juicy and talk about that. And I get a little bit into that in the book too. But mm -hmm. we often don't talk about animals' spiritual lives. Yeah. And so in the last, I'd say about 30 or 40 years, there's been some research on this, uh, looking primarily with the work of primatologists. Jane Goodall is a, is a big pioneer there in, in her awareness and observation of what she was seeing with the other species hanging out at waterfalls or watching the sunset or deep in meditation uh, and neurologists who look at what happens when we have a spiritual experience, what happens when we're deeply in prayer or meditation, what part of our brain lights up. And then they say, well, that part of the brain that lights up is also in the brains of cats and dogs and horses and other species. So they're completely capable of having the same type of feeling or experience that we have in these spiritual practices. And there's a lot of observation. Like I like to talk to cat people and say, 
you know, you look at the cat and the cat's just kind of staring off, you know, not moving, kind of just happy and blissed out a little bit. Is that cat meditating? Yeah. Or, you know, what we call meditation, right? Is that cat connected deeply to their environment? Is that cat in that beautiful state we try to get to in meditation where thoughts slow or hopefully they cease. They never fully cease, but those spaces of spaciousness. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the research that we have. And those of us who are interested in this area have started to talk about this in terms of, you know, we need to talk about religion and spirituality outside of language, outside of beliefs, outside of beliefs in, in a certain picture of the divine. And we need to talk about spirituality using these words, awe, wonder, mindfulness, capacity for being wowed. Mm. <laughs> that's not a research term, but that's one of mine. <laughs> the capacity for being wowed. And we yeah. see that across other other species. So yeah. I think that us denying them souls or denying them spirituality is just another place in a long list of denying other species the ability to feel or to think or to be right. empathetic. And right. as we break down each one of those as Awesome people have been doing work and writing about breaking down that. Uh, and now we know so much more. I think spirituality might be one of those final frontiers mm. where we have to break down what we've learned or what we've heard that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's interesting how different it is in Eastern thought because there is the understanding that animals do have souls. They are animals just as we are animals. And with reincarnation, transmigration, you can move from being human to animal and back uh, in many of the traditions, Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism. So it's fascinating that there is this uh, understanding of, uh, of spiritual life and uh, an afterlife being so connected with animals in, uh, in Dharma traditions. That's why I love the Dharma traditions. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and it's also kind of fun to push our belief that those things don't exist in the Abrahamics and in some of the other traditions because we find it. Yeah. It's just been written out. Right. For economics and for mm. utilitarianism, it's there. And on the flip side, we also see in the Dharma traditions that um, sacred text doesn't necessarily relate to what people are doing with their actions. Right. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things about being an interfaith minister is being able to reclaim those beliefs and those ideas within the traditions where they've been buried and where they haven't been lifted up. There's some gorgeous work coming out in, in, in Judaism with the idea that each animal has a different song that they sing to the divine. Mm. Um, and there are these different chants that you can chant to connect with them. So it's more buried. Uh, I think that, it, you know, we, we have a history and a legacy since the late 1800s in the U.S., of associating animal welfare with the Eastern traditions. And it's really important that we do the work to also lift it up in some of the other ones. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, when I was a child, I remember thinking of Jesus and, and always he was holding a little lamb. You know, there was that compassion, uh, seeing him as a shepherd, uh, as a, as a caregiver, uh, to animals, even though of course, you know, shepherding is not necessarily, uh, the uh, benign profession that we, <laughs> that, uh, that is associated, but the, but the feeling, the, the idea that he's a protector uh, of all, and even the, even the, the least or the, the most vulnerable, um, being a sheep. So I've heard you talk about roadkill and you, and you talked a little about it uh, when you were introducing yourself in your childhood uh, about animals that were, that were struck and killed by cars. And, and I, I hate that word roadkill. I wish there was some other, other description, but of course we're talking about animals that are hit by cars uh, on the road. And it's such a tragic part of our modern life. Can you talk more about this? I can, and I can give you an alternate term that may not solve the heartbreak with words, uh, but flattened fauna. Oh, no. it's another term <laughs> oh, goodness. That, that I occasionally use. Wow. Um, yeah. And I have a bit of snark in me, as you've probably noticed. <laughs> I'm, I'm a snarky type of pastor. Um, but I think including them in our conversation is important for a couple of reasons. It gives people a doorway to explore compassion for animals and our, and our culpability in the loss of animal lives. It's also a shared experience. We've all passed an animal who's been hit on the road and a yeah. high percentage of us have collided with an animal on the yeah. road and had to deal with, with what that feels like and the ramifications of that. And it also can prevent the shutdown that some people may have when hearing the word vegan. Uh, I often use conversations about animals that are killed for people who are very resistant to that word or have a lot of baggage. And it gives us a way to talk about actions that we can do that are beyond diet. Drive more alert. Don't text in the car. Uh, learn more about why animals are dying on our roads and the impacts of roads. And so it may be a way for people to enter the conversation and then be able to expand so I did a, a little bit of research actually on roadkill because I knew I was going to ask you this question and just kind of wanted to look it up. I hadn't uh, really read anything about it in a very long time. And I saw in this uh, interesting article on NPR that in the recent uh, infrastructure bill that was just passed by Congress, it allocated $350 million for wildlife crossings. There's actually a, this group called Animal Road Crossings, and it says that this is the first time ever that federal, the federal government has allocated big money for the issue. They, they started talking about uh, car insurance and you know that, that so much car insurance is, is paid out because of the crashes, uh, but of course, animals will benefit, uh, and that's why we care. Um, that's why they should care, uh, but, uh, but it was just, it was really interesting to hear that. And I, I love the idea of these wildlife bridges, you know, that, that go across and then fencing guides them to these bridges uh, and crossings. So that's kind of exciting that that's hopefully going to be happening more in the U.S. 
I hope so. There have been a number of initiatives, and there's a beautiful wildlife crossing up in Banff, up in in, oh, yeah? um, in Canada. Uh-huh. There, there's there's a whole field of study called animal geographies, and these are folks who study how animals move, how they get from one place to another place, and determine where are ways that we can decrease their hazards and the problems in the movements of animals. And so uh, overpasses is one, underpasses is another. Like Uh, tunnels. Yeah, yeah, tunnels right near me. uh, We put in a big metal kind of round tunnel to help turtles Mm. uh, because they're real slow across the road. Uh Um, All of these different things. So this is a doorway to look at how can we have concerns about animals who aren't in our homes yeah but are around or on our plates our <laughs> right or yeah. and are around our homes yeah and if we're doing things to our our see me use the word our to our yard uh, or our community can we consider some of the other beings who call these lands home so it's yeah. fascinating and really exciting work yeah definitely so I, I would love to hear more about your Compassion Consortium project. This is a monthly gathering, a monthly online gathering, and I love to attend when I can. I've been uh, going since the beginning, and it started not too long ago, well, maybe a year. You'd have to tell us when it, when it started. Uh, it was during the pandemic, I'm pretty sure. And I, I write it on my calendar as Vegan Church. So I'm sure to go to my vegan church group. Uh, and it's, it's really fun. You have wonderful guests. Tell us more about the Compassion Consortium Project. It's so great to hear that. I love to hear from people. It's useful. It, it really started because uh, William Melton was a student of mine at the seminary and going through becoming a minister. And he is a Um, amazing animal activist and his wife, Victoria Moran, uh, some of the listeners may, may know. And William said, actually the same words that you just said, Hope, he said, I want to have a vegan church. Yeah. (laughs) And I said, fabulous. And, you know, he went through the seminary process and, and it's fascinating because, you know, he was a a, a staunch atheist when he came out and and then very quickly wanted a, a vegan church. (laughs) <laughs> and as he, as he was nearing his graduation, he said, I want to do it. Do you want to be part of it? And so William and I and Victoria and another wonderful graduate from One Spirit, um, Erica Allison, we all joined together at the end of uh, last year. And our first service was in April. We made the fourth Sunday of every month. And how we position it is that Compassion Consortium is an interfaith, interspiritual, and interspecies community that offers guidance, support, and fellowship to vegans, vegetarians, animal rights activists, animal lovers, and all humans who care about and advocate for animals and the planet. And so what it means is we're really, really interested in some of these things that I've been talking about, some of benefits to humans and to other species about having shared spirituality. So some of that is through videos where we'll send Erica out to farm sanctuary and and she'll do chanting with some sheep or she'll do attempt to do movement meditation with goats. Uh, That one is, (laughs) is, is a lot of fun. All of these are also up on YouTube and you can get to them on the Compassion Consortium site. So it's a lot of fun and it's also deeply spiritual. So we have you know, songs, we have the meditation practices, we do the prayers at the end. 
And we also have a really thoughtful interview with someone each month who comes and talks to us about how they are integrating concern for other species with religion or spirituality. We've had yeah, from all uh, different religions. You have so we many, have, yeah. yeah. And that's why we we move from being vegan church to compassion consortium. The word church for some people yeah, is a right. loaded, is a loaded sure. word. So we've had hereditary chief Phil Lane, we've had Sufi Duke McLeod, New York's own mother pigeon. We have all sorts of interesting folks who come to to talk with us. And I'm excited about uh, expansion. We have some exciting things happening in terms of a membership plan that opens up access to people for monthly meditations with us between services. And in the fall, we're launching an animal chaplaincy program. Oh, wow. So anyone who's interested in doing the kind of work that I've been talking about, you can come study with us. We have a three-month, a six-month, and a nine-month option. Huh. And if you go to the Compassion Consortium website, uh, you'll learn about that. You'll study with me and some other experts in this field and uh, guest presenters and read really juicy stuff about how do we deal with ethics and what do we learn about spirituality. So we're excited about that expansion as well. Well, I've really loved these gatherings, the Compassion Consortium. You know, over the years, I have uh, looked for different spiritual communities. I've gone to, you know, like a Universalist Unitarian gathering or something like that. And what will happen is that, you know, I'll, I'll enjoy the service or whatever. And then the fellowship afterward will have animal products, you know, yep. Like st- yep. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, oh, and here they're talking about compassion and I know. You know, love I know. for your it's neighbors. And, and it's just so frustrating uh, that, the, that that connection is not being made in those spiritual communities. So that's why I just love that uh, you have started, that you all have started this, that you're uh, building this wonderful community of people that get it, that get that connection. Uh, and that, you know, if you have those leanings can feel at home and feel like you have a spiritual home. So I love that. You make it, you make an important point, Hope. And that's one of the things we try to do at the consortium, which is, you know, you enter uh, at your own level of comfort. So, you know, we try to create a safe space where we are not going to have Um, some of the things that activate us uh, who are concerned about animals. So we ask people to to do whatever feels comfortable uh, within the service. And we have some tenets of agreement that set up our ethics. And it's really, it's a lot of fun, you know, come and try it. See, see if things, you know, feel good for you, the things that, you know, you might be a little more like, I'm not sure about that yet, then, you know, you just kind of watch. So we, we really have a low barrier uh, for what is required. And we just want people to come and be part of this really juicy conversation about animals and spirituality. Wonderful. I love it. Well, I will definitely put a link to the Compassion Consortium in the show notes so people can go and check it out and register. You have to register for every one of them. So be sure to uh, register and, uh, and come if you'd like to. Well, Reverend Sarah, it has been really wonderful to talk to you. I feel like I could, we could just talk all day about all this. I love it. I want to ask you though, as we wrap up, what gives you hope for the future? I have hope in our increasing willingness to talk about this messiness like we're doing today. Hope. Mm, yeah. I think an openness to having conversations where you know, how I cope with heartbreak or compassion fatigue or ethical fatigue, being able to talk about these things 
gives me hope. When we started this interview, you know, I talked about the powerlessness of having decisions made for me and my cognitive dissonance with, you know, not being able to make decisions. And, and now I'm an adult who can make decisions that help preserve life. They help reduce suffering. And I have this spiritual life that gives me tools to handle my suffering when things don't go the way that I want mm. or the way that I would like, or the way that I think it should happen. So hope for the future is that we have a lot more of these conversations that we never stop talking about it and we never stop supporting each other in our heartbreak that's right next to our hope. Mm, beautiful. Beautifully said. Well, I'm a closet Taoist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I've had a lovely time talking to you and uh, I can't wait to see you at the Compassion Consortium. This was so delightful, Hope. Oh, good. It, it really, um, you know, when I, I, I see your face and I don't get that time to be able to have such a lovely conversation. And this has just been, I'm so glad you reached out and we had the opportunity to do this and to get to know you better. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. There are now numerous ways to support this podcast, and I hope that you will help us out by taking just a brief moment and scrolling down on your listening app and leave us a five-star rating and write a review. It doesn't have to be long. It helps so much, though. Someone told me that they were searching for the podcast recently and they put in the word vegan and this podcast didn't come up and I'm trying to do all the right things with tagging and search words and all of that. But until there's more ratings and reviews, the algorithm just won't pick it up. So please help me to reach more listeners and leave a rating and or write a review. Other ways you can help, you can share our episodes from our Facebook page and also now our new Instagram page if you are on Instagram. We also now have a Patreon page so you can support us financially there. We have some awesome guests coming up in the next couple of months, including the amazing Jasmine Singer from our Hen House podcast and Veg News and so much more. We're also going to have Deborah Bloom from Goatlandia Farmed Animal Sanctuary, and we'll be talking about all things goats. So that will be fun. I love goats so much. So there's some great stuff coming up. I want to make 2022 the best year yet for this podcast. So please help us to make that a reality by leaving a rating or review or sharing our podcast with your friends, family, social media. Help us in any way you can to grow our listeners. So going back to what I was talking about in the beginning, I hope that you're able to find some hope, some balance from the heartbreak of what's happening to animals and the planet. Find a way to get sensitive to the good. Find those subtle but meaningful and profound things that demonstrate that this world is worth saving. Look for the things that bring you joy, or at least a smile. And I hope that this podcast is one of them. So look for hope, be sensitive to the good, and live vegan. <laughs>